Well, today, Lord willing, we will continue and finish, wrap up our study in 1 John. So I hope you've been encouraged and strengthened in your faith. I hope you've been, you've been grounded in the truth uh, that John's trying to deliver to us, which is we can know, we can know with certainty that we have a, an everlasting relationship with God. John was the last living apostle, and he's writing this letter as an old man. Everybody else, all his peers, the other apostles have died off at this point. They've died for Christ. John is living for Christ and for his church. And I love his passion. He begins this letter with the same kind of zeal you would imagine from a guy who'd just been walking with Jesus. I mean, years have passed since Christ was on the earth, but John is still as passionate as he ever was about Christ. I love it. He wants people to know the Jesus that he has seen and heard and walked with and had meals with. He wants them to know that Jesus. So he's coming at us with that kind of passion. One thing John wasn't going to stand for is to allow the truth about who Christ is to be distorted. And that's what was going on in his day. And that's the reason, one of the main reasons he writes this letter is because some false teachings had surfaced in the church. They were leading some astray. And so he's writing this letter uh, to the churches to put their feet on the solid foundation of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Well, we live in a world of uncertainty, don't we? Um, we're uncertain about a lot of things. Um, um, you know, COVID created a setting where you, you can't even sneeze without somebody, you know, looking at you funny. You know, things get very uneasy and uh, if you if you get a cold, there's this nagging uncertainty, you know, well, is it is it the, the thing, you know, is this the thing? And um, but it's not just that uncertainty has actually become a really big business in our country. A lot of people make a lot of money off of our uncertainty and our uh, leveraging or hedging against uncertainty. When you go buy a new appliance at the store, you get to the checkout lane and uh, you know, you, you check out and then the, the person at the checkout says, well, would you like to buy the three-year warranty? And immediately you think, was well, this a lousy machine? I mean, is this thing going to crash out on me? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about a fridge, for example. Uh, maybe your refrigerator, maybe they're planning on the ice maker going out after like two and a half years. And so you're going to need that three-year warranty. I'm a little bitter about it because our ice maker has quit at the house. Um, but if, uh, if you drive a car, you probably buy insurance. Well, you, you should. You have to. But uh, you buy insurance just in case, right? Just in case there's a wreck. Uncertainty has pushed you to, uh, to hedge against it, to leverage against it. Um, even in life and death, things are uncertain. And so we, we often buy life insurance. I've tried not to tell my wife that she'd be better off without me, but it's true. Um, Financially, she would be, but we buy life insurance to make sure our family's taken care of, you know, just in case something happens. And so we, we spend a lot of, well, a small fortune bracing for uncertainty. If I asked you right now, don't answer this aloud, but if I asked you right now, what are you absolutely certain about? Like, no doubt, no questions. For sure, for certain, this is true and will happen. What would you say? Taxes. Taxes. <laughs> okay. 
That's actually a common answer. Taxes and death is apparently a pretty common answer. Well, the Bible deals in certainties. And I could give you a, a long list, but I really just want to look at what John is teaching us here. It speaks about absolute certainty. And it speaks those truths into a world that's constantly bracing for uncertainty. There's some things that God wants you to know for sure. In this short letter that John writes, he uses the word know about 39 times. And if you look just at the chapter we're going to look at today, you'll see it quite a few times. Most notably in chapter 5, verse 13, he uses these words. I've written these things so that you may know you have an eternal life. So everything in the Bible is perfectly true. Uh, but not everything in the Bible is perfectly clear. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say that? So we're going to read in this text today, and uh, there's going to be some, some parts of this passage that are difficult. They're challenging, and I'm not really sure, honestly, that, uh, that I understand it completely myself. So, uh, but here's what we affirm. As a church, what we affirm is that the Bible is perfectly true. It's our supreme authority. So where we disagree or we don't understand, it just shows my lack of understanding. Not the Bible's lack, but my lack. Does that make sense? It's not that the Bible's not right. It's that I just don't get it. And so we're going to get to a few spots like that today. It's, maybe it's just because, maybe if you struggle with understanding the Scripture, it's because maybe you're a new believer and you're still learning how to, how to read the Bible. Or maybe... Uh, it's because what was written was written thousands of years ago, and we don't quite get a grip on the cultural context in which it was written. It, it could be a lot of different reasons, but regardless of what the cause is, parts of the text today are difficult to understand. We're going to do our best with it uh, and ask the Lord to be our teacher. So my goal is to finish First John with a focus on the main ideas from this chapter. We won't get too bogged down in some of the trouble, trouble spots um, just a couple of things um, that as you're reading your Bible and you come across difficulties, let me give you some pointers. Um, you want to work from clarity, from the areas that are clear to those that are unclear. So start with the things that you do understand, that you do know that are most clear. Uh, one principle would be the plain truth is usually the main truth. All right. There's always going to be some things maybe that you don't get, but. Start with the plain and main truths. And then one other help is when you come across a passage that seems really difficult, um, let clearer other scriptures help interpret those that are not quite so clear. So scripture interprets scripture. Just trying to give you some helpful tools, uh, but we've got a lot of ground to cover and a really good meal waiting on us. So let's get started. Why don't you stand to your feet as we read? We're going to read uh, all of chapter 5. And jump right in. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death... He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... We're here today because we've come to know you as the son of God. You came to save sinners and you gave your life so that we can live. And today, Lord, we celebrate this good news and we ask if there's anyone here or listening in online today that does not know you, that has not come to know Jesus as the Son of God, Savior of the world, that you would open their heart to believe and be saved today. For those that may be paralyzed with doubt, struggling with uncertainty, I ask you, Lord, to show yourself faithful and true. Jesus, you are our sure and steady anchor. We put all our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So a couple of weeks ago, I had the honor of, um, of preaching at an FCA event. Uh, a few hundred students, some coaches um, gathered in a field out in Oxford, and it was cold, a little rainy, uh, but it didn't ruin the night. I, I gave a, a short message, if you can believe it, a 
short message um, that I called or entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. The challenge was to encourage this crowd of young people and some adults to not be lured into the trap of chasing stuff and the pleasures of this world. Because it'll never truly satisfy. The encouragement was to repent of sin, to put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and to give your life to making Him known. As the night wrapped up, I got in my car, started uh, to head back to the house, picked up the phone, called my wife, let her know I was on my way home. And um, as I looked at my phone, I had a text from uh, a phone number I didn't know. And I looked, looked at the text and it, and it was uh, from a student who had been in the crowd. I don't know how he got my number, but it was a short message. He said, hey, um, Justin, I... I really want to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't know how. Can you help me? So I turn around (laughs) and uh, we texted back and forth. And since he'd already left the event, I ended up calling him. We had a a short phone call. Actually, we talked about sin. We talked about Jesus. We talked about surrender. And um, that young man prayed with me over the phone, gave his life to Jesus Christ. as I'm driving the highway, I'm just sharing the gospel. Powerful. Powerful. Uh, he, I got word this week, he ran into a buddy um, at the store. I got word this week he was baptized into a local church and, and is uh, super excited about his relationship with Jesus. And so I sent him a text back. I was like, hey, man, I heard you got baptized. That's awesome. He just sent me the praise hands, you know. I was like, okay. Um, Listen, that young man, he was born again, born again. Praise God for that, right? That's amazing. Um, What I want to do today is be very, um, I want to make the main things the main thing. Okay, there's a lot of weeds we could get into with this text, and I just want to stay right on the main thing. So I, I want us to look at two questions that God wants you to know the answers to. Two questions that God wants you to know the answers to. Here's the first one. Do you know that you are born again? Do you know that you are born again? Look at the very first verse of this chapter. The Bible says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Born of God. Where, where do you think John, the apostle, gets that, uh, that terminology, being born of God? Where, anybody know where John might would get the terminology, being born of God? Anybody know? Mm-hmm. Good answer. Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus had a conversation in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. Anybody remember this conversation? <clears throat> So in John chapter 3, he meets with Nicodemus and he looks this religious teacher, this elite uh, leader of the religious system in the eye on a cold night, I imagine. And they're meeting together at night because this guy was ashamed to come to Christ in the day. He knew it would cost him too much, but he met with Jesus at night and Jesus looked him in the eye. 
a religious man, mind you, leader in the church. And he looks at him and says, unless you're born again, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Born again. And here John is now giving us this same idea. He says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So we have this idea. Jesus looks Nicodemus in the face. This is a very bold statement. I mean, can you imagine how how Nick might have felt, right? Born again. If Nick, Nicodemus, I don't want to call him Nick, but if Nick can't make it to heaven, who can? Jesus' point, no one on their own. No one on their own. I think, I, I, I wish sometimes that you could hear the inflection as you read this scripture. I wish I could hear the inflection I wonder how Nicodemus felt when the weight of that kind of sat on him. I mean, he worked so hard all of his life, had worked his way up the ladder, right? He was at the top of the religious food chain. And Jesus looks at him and goes, it's not going to work. You must be born again. I imagine he responds with some frustration. I mean, in the Bible, we know he's like... um, born again like how could I do that am I supposed to go in my mother's womb again and be born again this is what are you talking about this is impossible and Jesus is like "Mm, exactly yes it's impossible for you and just to sink it even deeper uh, Nicodemus wanting to control his own spiritual future Jesus says you know it's a little bit like um, the wind The wind blows where it wishes. You can't control it. So it is with the Spirit of God. Imagine Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? If I can't control it, what hope is it? To which Jesus might have smiled back and said, there's a lot of hope. Me. So John, now writing... From that perspective, he asked this, this sort of proverbial question is wrapped up in this. So how is someone born of God? How are we born of God? And he says here, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Now, in our culture, we seem to have made faith this like thing that is, you know, I've got strong faith or weak faith or great faith or little faith or big faith or no faith. And I get that. There's some teaching about that. But faith at its bottom level essence is utter dependence on someone else. So the point John is making here is not like if you just have enough faith, you'll be born again. What he's saying is. Run to the one who can rescue you. He can make you born again. And only he can. Faith. Truly believe the truth about Jesus. That he's the Christ, the son of God. How how do you believe? Well, God opens your heart. God opens your heart to see the truth about Christ. 
I think back to when we were studying through the book of Acts together. We got to Acts 16 and uh, Paul meets a woman named Lydia. She's, uh, she deals in purple cloth. I don't know if you remember her, but there's this phrase in Acts 16 verse 14 about Lydia. The Bible says that the Lord opened her heart. I love that truth and I believe it's the truth for anyone who believes in Christ. There's a work of God in your heart to open your, open your heart, open your eyes to see truly who is Christ? Who is he? And when you see him for who he truly is, God puts faith in there. It's this, this new thing that happens. So if you're here today and you really haven't come to trust in Christ, and I'm not talking about, you know, that you, you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or, or were baptized. Those are great things and they are usually um, things that happen as a result of the new birth. Okay, but I want, I want to know and I want you to know and John wants you to know with certainty that you've been born again. That you've been born again, transformed by God. Think about the illustration for a minute. Born. Just your natural birth. What kind of control over that did you have? Zero. There's a point Jesus uses this illustration, this metaphor to go with the spiritual reality to say, have you been born again? He's not telling you, have you checked all the boxes? Have you, have you got this thing done? Have you handled all the things you need to handle? That's not what he's asking. Have you been born again? Have you been brought to life? You're passive in this thing. Your eyes are open. You see and realize Christ is who he is. And faith wells up in your heart. God has made you alive. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. This is what it is to be born again. And the big question that I want to set on you today is, have you been born again? And John wants you to know with certainty. And you know what? You can. You absolutely can be sure. God wants you to know his son as savior. He wants you to know his son. He wants you to be born again. If you are a Christian, <clears throat> but you've been doubting your salvation, that's usually because of either disobedience or um, just a, a stint of maybe depression. Lots of reasons. Maybe you're doubting what God has done in your heart. I want to give you the, the three primary tests that John uses throughout this letter. And they're right here in verses one, two and three. The three primary tests are true belief in Jesus, obedience to Jesus, and love for Jesus and others. Now look at them. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So true belief in Jesus. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And obey his commandments. Obedience to Jesus. In verse 3. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. In verse 2 it says. 
We know that we love the children of God when we love God. So this idea of love for God, love for others. These are the three tests, and John is just sort of packaging them for us really tightly in those three verses. So do you genuinely believe that Jesus is the perfect Son of God who came to save sinners by giving His life for ours? If you believe that, then you also see Jesus as a resurrected King He didn't just die for us. He rose from the dead and is seated on his throne. And so how do we interact with this king? We interact with him through loving, faithful obedience. He's our king. So the question here then is, are you born again? I want you maybe to think about it this way. Is the pattern of your life Faithful, loving obedience to Christ. Is that the pattern? I'm not saying are you perfect or do you sin? We, we've covered that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. John says, if somebody says they don't sin, they're a liar. And then talking to Christians, he says, when you sin, we have an advocate. So listen, he's not teaching that we're perfect or going to be perfect here. We all know better, right? None of us are perfect. But the pattern of your life, the direction of your life, Is it toward faithful, loving obedience to Jesus? This is an evidence of true salvation. The Bible says everyone born of God overcomes the world by faith, right? Well, faith in what? Then he gives us, look at verse 5. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to imagine for a minute a courtroom setting. And um, the, uh, the prosecution has brought their case because this is the setting John's writing in. There's, there's a lot of people saying some things that are not true about Jesus. And so there's a, a, a lot of things that have been brought up. They're like, look, he's a good man. He, uh, he worked a lot of crazy, cool miracles. Um, we really do believe that the Spirit of God came on him at baptism. Like, that was awesome. Um, but when he died, he, he just... He was a man. His death was tragic. It was sad, but it was just a man dying. It wasn't God dying. That's what people were saying. And John is writing to bring the truth to that. And so in the courtroom, he's going to call three witnesses to the stand. That's the, the wording that he's using is this witness to give testimony to the truth. In the book of Deuteronomy in Old Testament, uh, we know that Jewish custom required a witness, a threefold witness And if anything was given threefold witness, it was verified as truth. So, for example, um, you could be sentenced to death and be killed immediately based on the witness of three people. If three people said, I saw him kill her, you were going to be executed. It was that valid, right? A threefold witness was their establishment of truth. And so John is bringing in threefold witness. And this is where it gets a little tricky. A lot of um, scholars disagree on what this is. I want to give you kind of what I think. But the threefold witness he gives are the water, the blood, and the spirit. The water, the blood, and the spirit. And what he says in verse 6 is, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is 
the truth. So water. What is John talking about when he says water bears witness that Jesus is the son of God? I think when he says this, he's pointing to Jesus's baptism. I think he's pointing to Jesus's baptism. That moment began Jesus's earthly public ministry. Remember uh, the scene, if you will. You can read it in Matthew 3 if you want to. But John the Baptist is baptizing people in a baptism of repentance. He's calling people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And people are walking into the water. They're confessing their sin. And John is baptizing them uh, to prepare for the coming of the king. This is John's baptism. Well, in walks Jesus. And John looks at Jesus and he says, behold, what does he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, then Jesus surprises John. He walks into the water and he says, "Uh, you need to baptize me. John's like, no, 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 Lord, you baptize me. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I mean, this whole conversation. And then Jesus says, no, it must be this way. It must be this way. And and we wonder, what is Jesus doing? He doesn't need to repent of any sin. But even at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is identifying with sinners. He walks into sinful water with you and I. He didn't deserve to be there, just like he didn't deserve to be on the cross. But from the beginning of his ministry, he's identifying with sinners. So Jesus goes under the water and comes out of the water. And for Christ, it's not it's not a cleansing, a washing away of sin. It's a portrait of a future sacrifice, death, burial, resurrection. Jesus comes out of the water and all of a sudden the clouds break open and there's a voice from the heavens. This is my what son. Now, what did John tell us we were supposed to believe The one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. The voice from heaven, God, the father speaks over his son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. What a testimony. The spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And there's this fatherly affirmation and the spirit's anointing Christ as he's beginning his ministry. So John says, Jesus is validated by the witness of the water. Don't you remember? But not just the water, the blood. The water began his earthly ministry and the blood finished his earthly ministry. From the cross, from the crucifixion, Jesus said, it is what? Finished. So this was the culmination. He was accomplishing what he came to do. In baptism, he identifies with sinners. At the cross, he suffered and died in place of sinners. Because of his death, you and I can be set free. We are freed from the slavery of our sin. We had a real time, real life, real time example of that at the crucifixion. Do you remember? Um, Pilate was trying to weasel out of 
having to kill an innocent man. He was trying to play politics and do the right thing at the same time. And so he brings out a guy named Barabbas. I mean, a wicked, murdering insurrectionist. I mean, this is one of the worst of the worst. Just a gnarly dude, right? Brings out Barabbas and Pilate thinks he can fix the problem. He's like, hey, um, it's our custom to set somebody free. So do you want me to set free Barabbas or Jesus? And to his surprise, the crowd says, free Barabbas. And he's like, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. That's a real-time portrait of what happened for you and I. You and I are Barabbas. We were set free while he was crucified. The guilty released. The innocent, the righteous condemned on our behalf. The blood gives testimony, bears witness to who Christ is. When our Savior died, God showed his power. I want you to read with me. Flip over in your Bible to Matthew 27. There's a a portion of this scripture that actually not many people know. So I want to um, encourage you with what happened right when Jesus died. You know, at his baptism, a voice from heaven, something like a dove fell on Christ. We had some visual and audible um, witness to who Christ is. At his death, God was silent. So what happened? I want you to read how Matthew records the details in Matthew 27, verse 51. We'll look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. So this was the moment he died. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split now, I don't know if you know this. Read this next verse. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Did you know that happened? When Jesus died at the cross, people came walking out of their graves. Freaky. I mean, I'm just going to say it. That's freaky. Like weird. Why is this happening? Well, keep reading. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, look, truly, this was the what? son of God. Now get that at his baptism, there's a declaration from heaven. This is my son. And at his crucifixion, there's a declaration from earth. This is the Son of God. Well, the Spirit is the threefold witness, the third of the witness. So from his baptism, through his temptation, the Holy Spirit has been with Christ all along the way. Even Jesus' first public sermon in Luke chapter 4, he quotes Isaiah 61, the prophet, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to bring freedom. To bring liberty, to bring healing, to bring salvation. This is what Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord. And what we know is that the Holy Spirit empowered his works and his words all through his ministry. Jesus lived 
and died by the Holy Spirit. That's who he was. The, the Spirit of God bears witness to who Christ is. In John 15 and John 16, Jesus sends the Spirit to us, the promise Holy Spirit, and says that he will guide us into all truth and that he will glorify Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's mission today is to glorify Christ. Uh, A lot of people want to put the Holy Spirit um, in a real central place. But when we read Jesus's own words in John 16, he doesn't do that. He says that the Holy Spirit's role is to lift up Christ. And so if we want the Holy Spirit's presence, let's join him in lifting up Jesus. That's what the Spirit's role is, is to guide us into truth, to convict the world of sin and to lift up Jesus Christ as the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So what is the testimony of God concerning his son? Well, look at the scripture back in first John with me. What is the testimony that we're meant to believe? Look at verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave. God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Now, here is the title of this message. Whoever has the son has life. Do you know that you're born again? Do you have the son? Do you have the son? The second question, and uh, we'll dig into that in in a a little more in a moment. The second question that God wants you to know the answer to, we'll go through this one a little quicker, is this. Do you know you have eternal life? This is the testimony that God's giving. It's it's the message he's trying to give. God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son. Verse 11, eternal life is a gift. This was the message that John the Baptist or Nicodemus needed to receive. You can't earn it. It can't be bought. You can't live right enough to get this gift. It's it's received. It's received. It's a gift. Look at the word. God gave us eternal life. The most famous scripture in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But what? Have everlasting life. It all hinges on the son. You can know that you have eternal life. How do you know? Whoever has the Son has life. So what does the Bible mean? What does John mean when he says, has the Son? What does that mean? Well, he makes it super clear. A couple of verses earlier. Verse 1. And then also in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So to believe or trust in Jesus Christ. To have Him. Listen. To have him is to be had by him. To have Christ is to be had by Christ. To be be in possession of him is to be his possession. Saving faith is surrendered faith. In in James chapter 2, James makes a startling statement. He says... um, You say you believe, good for you. 
even the demons believe and tremble. What in the world could that mean? Well, John's saying if we just believe, we'll have eternal life. But then James says even the demons believe and tremble. Surely demons don't have eternal life. Demons would have eternal death, but they believe. What, is this, what does this mean? And James is trying to point out the fact that faith is not a mere assent of, and an acknowledgement of facts. It's not just saying, well, Jesus was a real person. He lived, he died, he rose again. I believe all those things to be true. That's not saving faith. Even the demons know that. Demons know the facts about Jesus. In fact, the demons were the first to confess him as the son of God publicly. And Jesus said, shh, shh, zip it. Nobody's supposed to know that yet. (laughs) But the demons were the first actually to make the announcement. They know who he is. Well, how does that work then? How can I know that I have eternal life if eternal life is in faith and the demons have faith? How how does this work? Well, it comes back to this. Saving faith is surrendered faith. What do the demons not have? Surrender. They know he's Lord. They do not accept him as Lord. They know he's the Savior. They know he's the Son of God, but they do not surrender. They will not bow their knee to King Jesus. Surrendered faith is where he's... You have him so deeply that he's all you need. He's all you want. You you bow your knee to King Jesus. Now, how does that happen? Once again, it happens when God opens your heart to see who he really is. When you see who he really is, you're like, oh my gosh, he's the son of God. I give my life to you. But so many people today walk around this life and put their faith in a prayer they prayed when they were seven years old that hasn't changed their life one bit. I'm telling you, it's not salvation. Saving faith rocks your world. Changes your life. You're born again. We must stop putting our hope in something we did. And start asking God to do something in us. That's what it is to be born again. to, To know that you have eternal life. Is to have God open your eyes, open your heart, and to just receive. And that changes your world. John is speaking and he's writing this book to give incredible clarity and certainty. What is eternal life? Once again, we think it's simple. We think about eternal life and the first thing we think about is Heaven, some place we go when we die. But John says eternal life. This life is in his son. Eternal life. Is to be with Jesus forever. Now hear me out. So many people think about heaven. We talk about heaven as a as a place and it's the place where people go when they die. They're much better off. I'm, you know, I'm so glad he's no longer suffering. And all those things are great and true if you're born again. But we think about eternal life in terms of a place we go. But John talks about it as a person we love. 
Life, this life is in His Son. Heaven is a place. It will be a place. God's kingdom is coming. But the emphasis here is not on a destination. It's not on a place. It's on a person. A lot of people today want to go to heaven, but ironically, they have no interest in Jesus. I want to go to a place where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness. If Jesus is there, okay. But I don't care. I don't care about him here. I don't really care about him there. Let me tell you, you don't get to heaven if you don't want Jesus. Why would you want to go? Heaven is in the sun. If you don't want him here, why would you want him forever? Eternal life is in the sun. Those who have the sun already have life. Did you see that in the in the the way John writes? He says whoever has the sun has life. Jesus said the same thing in John 3:36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But the one who does not obey the son, the wrath of God remains on him. That's John 3.36. In John 11, right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is the life. And if you have Jesus, you have life. John's writing so that you would know. Now, there's a lot of other things he wants us to know. Um, in John, uh, in in. Chapter 5, here in verse 14, we see that God hears our prayers. God hears our prayers. This is confidence that we have a relationship with Him, that when we pray, He listens. And when we pray according to His will, He answers. God hears our prayer. In verse 18, God gives victory over sin. What we see is that um, we know that everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning. That's what the Bible says, doesn't keep on sinning. So as we're born of God, he's giving us victory over our sin struggles day in and day out. We're we're changing. We're not perfect, but we're getting better and better. God's giving victory over sin. God is knowable. This is the one that's so huge to me. God is knowable. In verse 20, in Jesus Christ, you can know him. All through this book, he uses the word know. He uses Mostly the word oida in Greek, which is like a uh, cognitive understanding. I've got a really good grasp on this truth, oida. But right here at the end, look at verse 20. We'll finish up here. And we know that this, that's oida. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given his, us understanding so that we may know. That's gnosko. It's a different no. It's an intimate relational Knowledge, So that we may know him who is true. So the beauty is God is knowable in Jesus Christ. There's so much more in this little letter. But I want to ask you these two questions again. Do you know that you have been born again? Do you know that you have eternal life? I can't think of any more important questions ever. You need to be certain of these answers. Well, how can you be? Everything hinges on what you truly believe about Jesus Christ. Everything. Maybe today you're like that young man that texted me. 
And he said, hey, listen, I, I, I want to know Christ. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not real sure how can you help me. That's the perfect way to respond to a message like this. If you're in that situation, maybe today God is showing you you're not born again or you do not have eternal life. If that's the case, then reach out like more than anything in the world. I would love to talk you through that. So the Bible says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So call out to him today. Call out to him today. Let's let's pray together. On the phone with uh, that young man a couple of weeks ago. talking through sin and who Christ is and the need for salvation and surrender to Jesus. He said to me, I'm, I'm ready. I want to give my life to Jesus. But I've never prayed. I don't know what to say. And I said, well, that's all right. I can help you. And so we just talked a little bit through a prayer together and maybe you're in that situation this morning and I just want to help you if you've never known how to talk to God maybe you'd want to pray something like this in your heart right where you are God I need you I've tried to do this thing on my own but I just keep messing it up I've sinned against you. I am a sinner. I need to be born again, saved. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save me. He died for my sin so that I can be forgiven. Right now, I repent, I turn away from my sin, and I surrender, I turn my life over to you, Jesus. Please forgive me and be my Lord. If, uh, if you've prayed that way, Or if you'd like to pray like that, I would really love to talk with you. We're going to be here for a meal. We've got plenty of time. So I would really love to just talk you through what it means to be born again. What it means to live for Jesus. To be baptized. To be discipled as a follower of Christ. Do you know that you're born again? God wants you to know.